one item I'd put before you. You saw in the announcements that um, we have a congregational meeting uh, next week. And as Jordan said in the announcement, if uh, you are not a member, we would love for you to attend. Many of you have not seen a congregational meeting in love and joy and celebration, so feel free to be a part of it. Uh, we will also have a vote. That's really the main reason we're meeting uh, as uh, a family, a Lakewood family, is as the, uh, a vote regarding uh, considering Jordan Erickson for a pastoral position here in our church. And I continue to just encourage you, if you have questions beforehand, uh, please reach out to the elders even this week uh, so we can consider those and offer any clarification. Uh, but we look forward to that meeting with you guys. Well, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. I'll ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures, if you haven't already, and turn to Psalm 40. Our sermon title is Answers in Rescue. I think that is an appropriate title, not simply because of the context of our passage, but the very reality of our everyday lives. Of life, we want answers to our questions, and we want rescue from our circumstances, and we don't simply want it. We need it. We long for it, even if we struggle to admit it to the people closest to us or even ourselves. It was the theologian Tupac who said, unanswered questions keep us all stressing. I think I can give a hearty amen to that. There's an array of questions that we wrestle with in life, but I'd like us to consider four in particular. The Barna Group is a company that researches and reveals cultural and religious trends by conducting polls each year in the United States. This year, they revealed the most common questions that non-believers and even faithful followers of Christ, the questions that they have as it relates to the teachings of Scripture that we see. We will ask these questions as we go through Psalm 40, and I submit to our hearts and to our minds this morning that the words of David in this psalm offer clarity to our questions and even our objections in life. My main point is simply this, Christ's rescue offers answers. Christ's rescue offers answers to you and I. Now, this isn't just something you may find sewn on grandmother's pillow. And this isn't some cute phrase that we throw around as faithful followers of Christ. As we will see, the rescue of Christ is the ultimate heartfelt declaration of our minds, our souls. If you get this, that Christ, his rescue offers answers, if you get this, if you and I can taste and see how Christ's rescue of our hearts, minds, and souls answers the questions of life, you will never be the same. And that is what we are after. We come and gather as the body of Christ, seeking to worship God, give Him honor, and be radically transformed and changed by the Spirit of God as we see His glory in the Scriptures. Well, may the Lord do it. Uh, we consider first in our psalm a reason for suffering. A reason for our suffering. Would you read with me, please, verses 1 through 3? 
I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. We're often quick to emphasize, at least I do, I emphasize the good that I see in these verses. Because we've all cried out, we've all been in a pit of destruction, stuck in the miry bog like a car with rear wheel drive. Many of us have seen the Lord pull us out of sin and circumstance, and we look at these verses and we rejoice. And we're right to do that. Who might it be that sees these verses and doesn't get excited? How about the person in the midst of the pit or the bog right now? Or even the person who is considering Christianity and wonders why there's suffering at all? So we come to one of the top objections that Barna finds in their research. Objection. Why does a good and powerful God allow suffering? This is the question for the faithful follower of Christ and for the atheist. This is a raw and real question that cannot be skirted. It cannot be pushed aside or given some Christian cliche to answer. Well, how would you answer this question? Or rather, how do you answer the question in the midst of pain and toil? Deep stuff for a Sunday morning, I know. But in our psalm, David is waiting patiently for the Lord. But he's waiting in the midst of a mess, in the midst of circumstance and suffering, in the midst of wondering, what in the world is God up to? We actually find this often in the psalms. The psalmist asking, why, O Lord? What is going on? You see, waiting patiently requires trust and faith in God to work. But it doesn't mean that we don't have questions in the meantime. Real doubts as we wait. So in verse 1, David says, You heard my cry. David prayed. Prayed and asked God for help. See, in that moment, David was admitting that he wasn't God. He needed someone bigger than his situation to act and to work and to save him. David is, even in verse 1, confessing dependence as he waits and he cries. I say this often, but there is a healthy desperation to the Christian life as a faithful follower. Notice again in our verses the initiation of God. David is waiting and God, verse 1, God acts and inclined himself toward David and heard him. David is waiting and, verse 2, God acts and draws him up and sets him on stable ground. David is waiting and, verse 3, God acts and puts a new song in David's mouth and gave David joy. God is the great initiator of our life. We wait. He acts. We trust. He delivers. But we still have our question. 
Why does a good and powerful God allow suffering? Now, I don't think we can answer that question comprehensively in just one psalm, but verses 2 and 3 give us some firm footing to have an idea. Who is the rescuer of verse 2? God. Who puts a new song in the mouth of his people? God. As many see God's rescue of souls, who do they put their trust into? God. You could ask it this way. If you have never suffered, if you have never faced evil in your heart or in the world around you, if you have never met anything that you couldn't handle in life, would you need God at all? David's words in this psalm force us to consider that the answer is this. God allows the pit. God allows suffering because suffering produces good. Now, don't get it twisted. Suffering is not good. It's terrible. And many of you know and have the scars to prove it. But what suffering produces is without a doubt, good. David's suffering produced God's closeness and rescue in his life. David's suffering produced a thankfulness for firm grounding when that season ended. David's suffering produced a song of praise in his mouth as he gave God glory. David's suffering, his faithfulness in the midst of that suffering, and his praise after that suffering produced many seeing and fearing God and trusting in the great Lord who helps people made in his image. And so it is with us, my friends. There is a reason for our suffering. We do suffer, but not for no reason. And when we are rescued by Christ, it brings him great glory and makes his name known afresh in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us. We often find ourselves patiently waiting for our suffering. We find ourselves patiently waiting for our suffering to produce the good that God promises. If you find yourself in one of those seasons now, wait, pray, press into God's people, cling to his words and promises. There is a reason for your suffering. May God help us more and more. Well, next we see in our psalm, not just a reason for suffering, but a new life, a new life. Read with me, please, verses 4 through 10. Familiar language that we've been reading in our Psalms. Blessed, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. 
burnt offering in sin you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Now, there is a lot that we could say in the midst of all these verses. A lot that could be said about a new life that's been rescued and pulled up from the pit. But I'd like to point out three words that we saw in this section that mark the life of every faithful follower of Christ. And these marks should be evident in our life and take courage. They are evident in your life as imperfect and needing of grace and growth as they may be. But this does bring up another objection that Barna finds in their research. And it's an objection that, again, the believer and the atheist share. And the objection is this. Christians are hypocrites. They say one thing, but do another. And we covered this directly in the fall when we were in our series in Galatians 2. But the new life of Psalm 40 forces us to consider it again. The claims of Christianity are rather significant. Those who trust in the person and the work of Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his literal resurrection. Well, those who trust in those things are given good standing, forgiveness, and a new heart. It's that last point that we struggle with. We're given a new heart, a new life. You see, we encounter faithful followers of Christ, and we encounter our own hearts, and we still see flaws, sin, Overly opinionated, proud people who say they have new hearts in Jesus. And they have a new life, but it's not a perfect life. Well, the first word I'd like to point out in this section is found in verse 4. Look again, please. David says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud. One of the marks of a new life, someone rescued from the pit, is someone who puts their trust and their hope, not in themselves, not in their performance, not in their credentials or their good works. A new life puts their trust in the Lord and rejects proud, self-sufficient, and independent ways. Faithful followers of Christ trust that the one who rescued them from the pit is the same one that they can trust to rescue them from that future pit. Seems like there's a lot of pits we're falling into. We trust that God's ways and our following of Him truly does bring blessing and joy. We trust in His sovereign planning, His kind providential control of our relationships and the way we're wired and the cards that were dealt in life. We trust Him. Well, except when we don't. 
when we do the opposite of verse 4 and go astray after the lies of our proud ways and temptations. And it's then in that moment that the objections become true. In our proud moments, we really become hypocrites. God help us. The new life is to be marked by genuine trust of Christ in all things. All things. Well, there's another word in this section, hidden maybe a little bit in the midst of verses 6 through 8. Look again at the end of verse 6. But you have given me an open ear. Faithful followers of Christ, listen. This idea of listening is bookended by David reminding us that our performance and our good works, they ring hollow. Your relationship with God and with others. Now you may say and do all the right things, but God is not interested in your mechanical going through the motions. God does not delight in the outward sacrifices. He doesn't require your ceremonial offerings. Brothers and sisters, he's after our hearts. He's after your obedience that's born out of a deep affection and love for the Savior that rescued you. We can really grow in this liquid. We can grow because our hollow actions are hypocritical. They are contrary to what God would have for us. They are only a shell in an outward performance if our hearts and our minds are not bent towards listening to God and to others. He's given us an open ear. Now, I'll admit, I don't want to listen to some of you. There's a sense in which we really struggled with this because we, we rather cling to the outward mechanical obediences of, I did this and I said that, but to humbly listen to someone who may not always get it right, whew, that's tough. At least, it is, at least it is for me. The last idea with our new life in these verses, in this passage, is found in the reality of David's and our responses in verses 9 and 10. See, like David, a new life, someone who's been rescued and pulled up out of that pit, a new life proclaims, tells the news, and doesn't restrain the lips or hide the powerful workings of God in their life. My friends, we are to be a people who speak of the faithfulness of God. We are the people who openly communicate with others about the covenant-keeping, steadfast love of God. Far too often, this is not the case. And we talk and sound like everyone else in the world. We often seem hypocritical. If you want to know why you and I sound hypocritical to an onlooking world, well, we sound hypocritical because we operate and live with others as if God hasn't done a single thing for us. Now, in your heart, you might think God has done mighty things for us, but it's not coming from your lips. We reserve our proclamation and rescue stories for the safe places of a Sunday service. We desperately need to recover a biblical pattern of speech that sees everything, even the pots and pans, everything is spiritual and everything is an opportunity to proclaim. How was your weekend? 
oh, the Lord is so kind. I watched the Open and dreamed of being a successful golfer. How are your chickens doing? (laughs) Well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. One was recently murdered by a dog. How's your summer going? The Lord has sustained me in the summer months. How are the kids doing? The Lord has faithfully enabled me to love my kids, even when they're unlovable at times. How is work? God has given me a job. I'm grateful. How is your health? Difficult, but he's teaching me. God help us to speak about life, the life that God has given us in a way that points to him. Whether it's the mundane of your job or the conquering of your Minecraft or Call of Duty games, kids, shape your language to recognize and to give praise to the rescuer. Next in our psalm, we see a unique a unique deliverer. Would you read with me verses 11 through 15? As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let's get right to the Barna data and the common objection. We're talking about a unique deliverer. And the common objection is this. The message of Christ is too exclusive. David reflects on the very character and action of his deliverer. This deliverer has promise, covenant-keeping, steadfast love in verse 11. This deliverer is the one who acts not just once, but is pleased to deliver again and again and quickly in verse 13. This deliverer is a protector from those who would hurt and shame David in verses 14 and 15. But it's verse 12 that really pops in this section, and it speaks to the exclusive nature and the rescue of Christ. Read verse 12 again. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They, my iniquities, are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. What does David believe is his greatest and biggest problem? What exactly is the nature of the pit and the bog that he's been pulled out of and desires rescue from again? Yes, in a moment he'll mention some people that are against him. But what is the central focus of his problems? 
himself. His sin. The greatest evil, the thing that has taken him over, the issues that outnumber the hairs of his head is not his job. It's not his relationship. It's not his money or finances. It's not his political leaders. His greatest problem is himself. The exclusive nature of Christ as rescuer is intimately connected to the unique ability and power that Jesus has to change our hearts. As the disciples said, Lord, where else, where else can we go? You have the words of life. You see, there is no other God, no political figure, no resource or path of life that has seen God come down as man, die for humanity, conquer sin and death, and rise again to change people's hearts. You have not seen that. There is no comparison. That's unique. And you and I, we have gone to other deliverers, haven't we? We've sought rescue in people and things, and many of us have considered other religions, even the religion of self. Who can we turn to? Who can help me with my greatest problem? If you are here considering Christianity or your relationship with Christ has grown dull, that happens. Consider afresh the unique nature of Christ. Repent and turn away from your self-sufficiency and the manufacturing of your own fixing of your life. Repent of thinking that your greatest problem is outside yourself. It's not. Repent of thinking all those things contrary to Christ and turn to Jesus. Turn to the one with the exclusive power and ability to meet you where you are right now. And wherever you find yourself this morning, there is great grace for you in the gospel of Christ. He will not turn you away if you come to him. Jesus did say this in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Oh, unique. A deliverer. A rescuer. But lastly, in David's song, we come to this. An empirical reality. Read with me, please, verses 16 and 17. But, in contrast, but may all who seek you Rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. There's a couple items that our psalmist points to as clear realities. And the final objection that I'll share from the Barna research is this. The science and the Bible don't mix. I don't think David agrees with that statement, nor do I. Verse 16 states that those who seek God will experience the blessing that Jordan spoke about last week. 
Those faithful followers will lack no good thing. They will rejoice and be glad in the life that they've been given. Will it be perfect? Will every day and every relationship and every circumstance just, just be wonderful? No, no. But the Lord will give joy and contentment in himself despite their circumstance. And they will say with David, great is the Lord. Those are the facts. That is the observable and verifiable reality of the faithful follower of Christ. And it is to be true of our lives, brothers and sisters. But verse 17, well, that's the most tangible and logical announcement here in our psalm. He says, as for me, I am poor and needy. Now, perhaps this isn't the scientific statement that you were hoping to encounter. But it is just as true as the sky being blue or the chemical formula for water being one oxygen atom chemically bonded with two hydrogen atoms. I think, if we're honest, it would be difficult to deny that David's claim isn't empirically proven again and again and again in our lives, in our hearts, and in those around us. And this has been proven, has it not? It is observable and repeatable. We are poor and needy. We wake up each day, each one of us, in the midst of a position of desperation. Now, we do a pretty good job of convincing ourselves otherwise, and we still listen to others or even ourselves, and we were persuaded that we're not as desperate as we really are. We've got it under control. We're figuring it out. We may have some issues, but we're not poor and needy. How might we be poor and needy, though? Well, here's a few examples. We're dependent for the breath in our lungs and the beating of our heart. That's poor and needy. Each day, there is a battleground on our hearts, at least on my heart. A battleground in our hearts as we fight to continue to follow Christ. We seek to restore, repair, and establish relationships with people we care about. We're poor and needy. We're dependent on Him for physical well-being and the rain to come. We're dependent on God as we pray and ask Him to move and to work and to act in ways that we cannot. We lack the wisdom, the resource, and the power to do it ourselves because we are poor and needy. David concludes that it is these poor and needy who are the qualified to experience the grace and the rescue of God. It is the poor and needy that God takes thought toward, that he means Really, that he has thoughts towards each one of us. It is the poor and needy that God delivers and helps and acts swiftly toward. This promise that God responds and initiates and works in the life of the poor and needy, this promise is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Jesus taught this in his greatest sermon. He said, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is true today, brothers and sisters, the answers and objections of life, the blessing we so desperately long for, the satisfaction that God offers you today is given to the poor and needy. To the poor and needy who cling to and faithfully follow Christ. This promise is for those who are in the pit of destruction. For those of us who are in the miry bog and stuck and asking questions of life. Christ's rescue, it offers answers, my friends. May the Lord enable us to go to him this week. Would you pray with me? Father, that is a big prayer. That the rescue of Christ would answer objections and questions that we have each day. Lord, many of us through the week, we wonder, are you real? Are you powerful? Do you see? Do you care? Would you give us a great vision for Christ? Would you help us even this morning to see his beauty? The nature of his rescue isn't simply something that punches a ticket to heaven. But God, the nature of your rescue is one that gives us clarity to a broken world. So tomorrow when we find ourselves on a Monday morning asking big questions of life, would you be kind to point us to your son? Would you help us to be a people who simply pray and read, cling to the body of Christ, press into people, and have great hope that there is a reason for our suffering? That we do have a new life after we've been rescued from that pit. God, give us great hope in the unique nature and power and ability of Christ. And Lord, help us to see that it's not simply some blind faith, but it's an empirical reality that we are poor and needy and you are kind and good. Show us these things. Do more than we can think or ask. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing the last song together.